is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. This week, an 8.73 litre quad cam V12 in a Series 3 XJ6 land speed record car. We talk to the man that built it. Tom Robinson and David Marks answer all your technical questions plus an update on JEC Racing. JECpodcast.com Hello, I'm Wayne Scott and welcome along to this, the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. We're recording this as lockdown eases across the UK and the weather forecasters have just told us it's been the most sunny May on record. Well, it would be, wouldn't it, when we couldn't get out in our Jaguars, but never mind because now we have the results of our podcast competition that's been running over the previous couple of episodes and this is to win a stunning pair of limited edition cufflinks courtesy of CMC, that's Classic Motorcars in Bridge North and Icarus Originals in Shrewsbury. We spoke to Nigel Woodward on episode 6 of the podcast and he told us just how much painstaking detail has gone into the creation of these. These are limited edition and made from actual E-Type Series 1 pistons and they come with their own certificate of authenticity. And to be in with a chance of winning, all you had to do was to answer the very simple question we asked you in episode 6, which was, what is Martin Brundle's favourite racing car? We've had literally hundreds of entries. The email box was full, and each of you that entered was assigned a number, which was fed into a random number generator online that picked our winner. And now I have that winner with me to announce... And the winner was... <laughs> you can't beat a cheesy drum roll. Got to be done. The winner was Duncan Woolgar, who correctly answered TWR Jaguar XJR14 as Martin Brundle's favourite racing car of all time. He told us that in part two of his interview, which you can still listen to now at jcpodcast.com. We'll email you shortly for your address and we'll send those cufflinks out to you. If you, by the way, still really want a pair of these cufflinks and you entered the competition and unfortunately you didn't win it, if you're not Duncan, basically, you can buy a pair yourself. Simply go to the website icarusoriginals.com and you'll find them on there to order online. Don't forget as well to get your Jaguar Enthusiast Club membership sorted if you haven't already joined us, as well as the fantastic Jaguar Enthusiast magazine. And I have my June issue right here. Very good. There's lots of other benefits on offer from exclusive travel experiences to dedicated insurance, technical help, and more discount codes and vouchers than you could ever need. Plus, it's a great community to be a part of. If you want to join us, simply go to the top right of the podcast website at jecpodcast.com and click the Join Us button. Or if you want to read more and find out more about the club, you can simply go to jec.org.uk and have a look around our news and members' information on there. Well, given that the coronavirus pandemic has put us all into lockdown and ended motorsport in the UK, I thought it was a good idea to get our racing coordinator from the Jaguar Enthusiast Club, Colin Porter, onto the podcast to oh, give us a bit of an update, really. And um, I guess the update for what's happened so far up to now is not much, Colin. No, it hasn't um, been uh, uh, very much at all up until now, Wayne, but all of a sudden we seem to have a, a flurry of activity in the, the last few days. And Motorsport UK held a meeting on Tuesday with, uh, with the venues and with the, um, 
racing clubs. And now um, the idea is that from the 4th of July, in accordance with the, the guidelines that Motorsport UK have issued after their discussions with the Department for Culture, Media and Sport, is that we'll be able to get racing going again um, from the 4th of July, but with a lot of restrictions in place. And to put this into context, sort of looking over the story of how motorsport has gone during the pandemic, it all ended at the end of March and they pulled the permits for a few weeks and then within a fortnight after that, basically, the uh, permits were pulled until the first week in July. 30th of June was the date they gave us. And that basically means no motorsport because this is the governing body we're talking about here, Motorsport UK. And it means that no motorsport could be permitted in the UK anywhere and now we are as colin says just finding out what we're going to be able to do and when but some of these guidelines that they're talking about here colin they're going to be difficult to manage for some circuits aren't they absolutely Uh, i listened to a very very informative um podcast uh live with the guys from castle coombe uh on bank holiday monday and i think it's still available on their facebook page Um, debating exactly how we were going to work, what the implications were for for marshals, for health and safety, um, for the the medics, and all all of those people are going to have to wear um, PPE equipment. My understanding is that um, Motorsport UK are going to requisition um, PPE equipment and issue it to all the circuits and, and the clubs on their behalf so that they ensure that they're not um, taking that away from the National Health Service, if you like. Um, but uh, listening to that podcast, it's absolutely mind-boggling the logistical problems that are actually going to have to be overcome to get racing on. But having said that, uh, I think that motorsport is one of the most uh, inventive and uh, if you like, um, innovative um, people that, you know, you can come across and, and they'll find a way around it. Absolutely. Well, the passion's strong, and that always means that we find a way around somehow, of course. Um, but one of the things that did leap out of me uh, from the Motorsport UK updated statement, which, by the way, you can read on our news pages at jc.org.uk, was this appointing of a COVID-19 officer that they're talking about. This might actually give us a clue as to what's going to be required to run all sorts of events, not just motorsport. Absolutely. You know, um Motorsport, like uh, you know, any uh, event, it's got to adhere to these uh, guidelines, and to have somebody in in place for for all of those things. In the case of the JC, we race with a number of partners um, that provide our racing platform. In the case of our um, Toyo Tires Watchdog App Saloon GTs, and uh, they 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 race with the Classic Sports Car Club. They provide the platform that we race with. So they will be the people that will um, provide the COVID-19 officer. We will probably have to um, police our own paddock area within that. And, um, and the same goes for the XK series and the Hawthorne Challenge. Um, the platform is provided by another partner who, who works alongside uh, AMOC, the Aston Martin Owners Club. And the gutting thing for all of us spectators, those that aren't behind the wheel of a race car, is that 
So far, there's no indication in Motorsport UK's guidelines that spectators are going to be allowed anywhere near a track, probably for the rest of this season. That's correct, Wayne. It's going to be strictly behind closed doors. And I think you're probably right. It is going to remain for, for uh, all of the season, if not, if not most of it. Um, what they're trying to achieve, if you like, is that we have the minimum number of people at the circuit. So what they've, what they've already uh, indicated is that uh, a driver will only allow, be allowed to bring one person with him, i.e. Uh, a mechanic or a member of pit crew. So the, the, the paddock is um, not as crowded as it would normally be. You know, typically you would see maybe five or six guys um, with with one driver, so it, it is going to reduce the number of people in the in the paddock. Um, even even the press, um, they're talking about only having one member of press representing the whole press corps, and they will then provide press information and, and pictures to um, other other journalists. Having spent years by race circuits taking pictures and writing reports for various outlets, dread to be that poor person <laughs> who is the one who gets let in because uh, you've then got to supply the copy and the pictures to every single publication. No pressure there then. So <laughs> I'll be interested to see how that works and how they get around uh, uh, licensing and everything else. Yeah, absolutely not. not. As, you, as you know, Wayne, I, I, I do call a lot of the, of the photographs and the reports for our own Jaguar Enthusiast Club magazine and, and Jaguar World. So um, I, I'm not sure how I'm going to get over that. I'll, I'll be there in my official capacity, but um, whether I'll be allowed to um, do the other bits, I don't know. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. And as we are just on the brink of getting halfway through the year, we're into June almost now, we're going to see a real squeeze of all of those events and all those championships trying to get enough rounds in before the end of the season, aren't we? How are Motorsport UK dealing with that and how are you going to deal with it with the JEC racing as well? Well, we've already lost um, six rounds uh, of the uh, saloon and, and GT championship because um, we should have started racing the, the weekend um, that they announced the, the lockdown the, the weekend after that would have been our first weekend and then subsequently the, the bank holiday weekends in May uh, we would have had the next two rounds on each of those so so we've already lost 50% of our, our season whether we can recoup some of that I very much doubt because as you quite rightly say there's going to be fixture congestion at the end of the season and in motorsport, if, if you like, there's a, there's a, a pecking order um, coming down from Formula One, British Touring Cars, British GT, um, Formula Three, uh, um, World Endurance Championships, uh, and those kind of things. And, and those, those are the things that, that, that really bring in the money for motorsport. And I think when you're thinking about the, the premium circuits like Silverstone, Donington, and Brands Hatch in particular, there's going to be racing every single weekend between um, July and the end of the season now, which is going to put a lot of strain on resources. I mean, we, we don't normally have every single circuit in use every weekend. And now you're going to have that pretty much until the end of the season. And there won't be enough marshals to go around. There won't be enough medics to go around. And, and so... 
um, there is going to be um, some races that just don't happen because of that. And not forgetting, of course, those marshals in the main are all volunteers as well. So they're going to be Absolutely. pulled from pillar to post and uh, they're trying to juggle their own lives and day jobs around it as well. You know, we talk about motorsport. It is for fun. But even in our sort of club racing hobby end of the sport, there's quite an industry that surrounds it. There is a serious side to this because careers depend on motorsport as well as it being fun. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the, the circuits have lost a huge amount of income already this year and they depend on those races for um, things like catering. They, they have on-site um, shops selling, selling spares and so forth. And, you know, they're, they're not getting any revenue at the moment. Given what you've seen so far from Motorsport UK and some of the regulations that are in place, what are the plans going forward for the rest of the year for JC Racing? Okay, well, yeah, I mean, our plans for the rest of this season now is really to to fit in as many races as we can. Um, I think realistically, um, the championship is a a championship perhaps is gone. Um, I, I, I think perhaps to to have less than 50% of the races um, would be it not being deemed as a championship. But that's, that's down to, to Motorsport UK and, and Chris will be liaising with Motorsport UK on that and, and see how we go forward in terms of the championship. The XK series and, and the Hawthorne Challenge, if you like, are, diff- are different because they're one-off standalone races. So they're not affected in that way. But of course, the guys that have invested huge amounts into their cars will want to get them out on circuit and use them. And a lot of, a lot of these people um, go racing because it, it, it promotes their own businesses. You know, they're um, small owner-managed businesses and, and, and they use it to, to, you know, to promote those businesses and, um, at the moment they haven't been able to do that well we really hope that we'll see some jaguars out on track very very soon colin and uh, thanks for giving us that update on jc racing of course you can keep up to date with all of the information and latest news and hopefully soon race reports via the website at jc.org.uk all of the articles are up there for you it's been a tough year but hopefully we'll see you out racing again soon but if we're not racing there is the opportunity of course to do track days with the club as well and you're the person who leads them so the future's looking brighter for track days for the rest of the year as well isn't it yeah, um, track days are, are likely to get going now from the beginning of June. That they can be managed in a, in a very different way, if you like. Their um, driver briefings can be done outside. You, you can you can run cars on track um, as long as you're um, you don't have any passengers in the car unless they're from the, you know the same household. And and getting uh, track days underway is going to be a lot easier. We're hoping to run one ourselves in October. Colin Porter, racing coordinator for the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Thanks for joining us. Memories of motorsport. Richard remembers on the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Richard West continues his fascinating series looking back over his motorsport memories. This week, he gives us an insight into how TWR's success in America began and who the people were behind it. 
In recent weeks on the podcast, uh, I and other guests have talked quite a bit about the success of TWR. Wynn gave that amazing insight into working with Tom and what it was like. But that was always around in the main Silk Cut Jaguar team. And I think one of the things that often gets overlooked is the enormous success that Tony Dow and his team had uh, in Valparaiso, which is where the TWR operation was situated in the United States. Martin touched upon it in uh, his interview when he was talking about winning Daytona and Le Mans. And if I, could, if I may, I'd like to really just sort of look back on those TWR Valparaiso days. It was, I think, 1987. Tony Dow at that time uh, had been worked. Tony Dow has an amazing history. He's a very understated individual, but he was an integral part of the Newman Haas racing team with Paul Newman, the film star, and of course, um, Carl Haas, not to be confused with Gene Haas, who's got a Formula One team these days. Tony was heavily involved, and he goes right back even earlier than that to when. He was racing in the enormous Can-Am series in the States, these enormous V8 powered Can-Am cars, when he worked with Keke Rosberg and uh, Patrick Tombay. So he was the he was the ideal guy to set TWR uh, America up. But in fact, he came to England, I think, in 1987 to take a look at the 88 Lola IndyCar chassis for Newman Haas. And as typical only Tom could do, Tom Walkinshaw could do, he invited uh, Tony down to Brands Hatch and of course the two of them got ch chatting and I mean in the space of an hour Tony's life was literally turned upside down I think it was the October of 87 he rushed back to the States handed his notice in much to Paul Newman's disgust I think and he went and found the facility in Valparaiso in Indiana which was purchased very very quickly and there were literally only 11 weeks before the 1988 uh, Daytona 24-hour race uh, you heard from Martin recently, Martin Brundle, how he went out to Talladega and did the test. But literally, they set that team up uh, in record time. The facility was immaculate. I always remember the first time I went there in 89, you walked into the main reception. You could see through this lovely glass wall into the main workshop. There would always be a great big TV screen. Even if you were an employee, you'd see TWR, Valparaiso, Welcomes, Richard West or Tom Walkinshaw to, you know, TWR America. Sometimes there'd be the odd cryptic message on that screen as well, but I won't go to those on the air. And Tony set the team up with his group of guys in just 11 weeks. And, of course, they went to Daytona, which up until then, for 11 years, had been dominated by Porsche. Nobody had succeeded in breaking the Porsche domination of the series. The cars went down, I think three cars from memory went to the 88 race, and lo and behold, bingo, you know, the winning car of Brundle, um, Raul Bazell, John Nielsen and Yang Lammers, there it was, Jaguar won the uh, Daytona 24-hour race in 1988, which was an incredible achievement. And then, of course, it went on to form the backbone of the IMSA program up against some amazing cars. There were some incredible Porsches. The, the Toyota was there with Dan Gurney's racers. There was the Nissan program in the most incredibly powerful cars that were there. And the V12 just went out there and immediately, you know, with everybody um, stoked up with the success of that Daytona win, the team went on to do very, very well in sports car racing in America and IMSA that year. In 89, the team with Castrol Branding, and it was a big move for, for Jaguar America. Jaguar was selling a lot of cars in the United States. They had a great reputation there, particularly down in Florida, and the older communities were buying some, you know, really expensively spec Jaguars at the time. And uh, in 89, the team went back with the intention of trying to repeat that success, but managed, I say only, managed to finish second 
um, in the 89 race. And, and Tom, a little bit like I said in one of my earlier chats about losing Le Mans, Tom was such a winner as Martin said in part two of his recent interview Tom was a guy who just existed to win and uh, again he really really wanted to get things established better in America and almost dominate if it was possible as Jaguar were doing you know in world sports cars at that time so for 1990 um, he'd really made this big effort and Tony had done some amazing things with his team of guys by then TWR Valparaiso was incredibly well established and Ian Reid, Alistair McQueen went back to and forwards. A number of really capable people were involved in the programme. And for 1990, uh, the team was incredibly well prepared. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Sharing the passion, sharing the knowledge. All your questions answered with the Jaguar model experts. Well, time once again to answer all of your technical questions here on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. And we start with a question on a Jaguar 4.2, and it's from Eddie Pownall, who says his 4.2 2008 model is showing a check pedestrian system warning light. Can you help? Tom, what do you reckon? Well, firstly, um, Eddie, I'm assuming it's a X150. You just mentioned it's a 2008 there. Um, I'm pretty confident it will be, as this is a very common issue on this vehicle. Now, first steps um, here would be for us to scan the vehicle and see what fault codes are present. They will nearly always point towards the front pedestrian impact sensors. Either one or both of the sensors would have failed. Now, these are part of the deployment bonnet system on the vehicle, so um, it is a safety-related system. Um, there are two sensors at the front, and we always replace these in pairs, regardless if it's one that's faulting. Now, there is a revised sensor available from Jaguar, um, and it does vary upon year. So Jaguar have a technical service bulletin for this, and it is important to get that right. So when you do replace the sensors, there is some holes that need to be drilled in the front crossbar to accommodate the new style of sensor. So it is a modified part to get over this issue. And it is fairly easy to access it from underneath the vehicle. You just need to remove the under trays. Um, but to be honest with you, Eddie, here we normally remove the front bumper just so we can gain access easily to redrill the holes. A relatively easy job then to do at home. You've just got to make sure that uh, you're able to reset and sort all the sensors out afterwards, I assume. Yeah, that's exactly it. We normally um, clear the codes down afterwards. Um, then the message should literally be straight off of the screen as soon as these are fitted back as they should be. Alex Herndon next, who says, I recently rebuilt the engine on my Mark II 3.4 litre and replaced the engine mounts. I also replaced the anti-roll bar bushes. Now, under braking the sump is banging on that anti-roll bar. Have you got any ideas? Yeah, sure. So I've spoken um, to David about this and he's given some great info. So firstly, if the engine was originally fitted with a steel sump and has been rebuilt with the alley one, um, special aluminium spacers need to be fitted under the anti-roll bar body mount brackets as the original design is to allow the ARB to clear the larger sump. Now, if the engine has been built to the same external specification as it was then, um, we'd be wanting to look at the engine mount. So firstly, um, what engine mounts are fitted? They are varying styles of quality. And also the rear bumper mounts, um, weirdly, are dimensionally exactly the same. So you must not use these. Um, and the engine mounts um, are made actually from a different rubber compound. So it's important just to check this. So I would obviously um, study the engine mounts. 
see if they have collapsed already. Uh, we tend to use an upgraded, a much harder um, mount than the original, um, and it actually lasts a lot longer. So this will make it sit slightly higher in the engine bay. Um, now, sometimes the cooling fan can also catch on the fan cowl, and this needs to be realigned. Finally, there is the issue of the gearbox and engine stabilizer mounts. A common mistake is to put a pin through the hole in the gearbox mount peg that then locks the gearbox spring mount. Now this must not be done as the spring mount should be free floating. Assuming the gearbox mount spring is in good order and has not collapsed, with this free floating, the stabiliser mount at the rear of the engine should be set so that it is all tight but has no impact on the ride height of the gearbox mount as it is all too easy to raise or lower the rear of the engine by means of adjustment of this mount. And this, of course, will impact on the relationship of the sump to the ARB. Assuming the existing anti-roll bar drop links were retained, I don't easily see how replacing these bushes could have an impact on the anti-roll bar position. Again, assuming the anti-roll bar itself has not been replaced with something else. Back to a modern XK now, a 2006 model. This is Chris Chapman who says, having purchased the car in July 2019, he loves it, which is excellent, except the sat-nav. He doesn't like the sat-nav at all. He says, uh, my experiences with the sat-nav on this car have been atrocious. I purchased a new update disc thinking that this would improve the system. It didn't. This system's not very intuitive in its operation. Is there a firmware upgrade which improves the system? Or has anyone taken the trouble to get a program written that improves the system? Is this a problem you hear a lot of, Tom? Yeah, unfortunately, Wayne, it is. Is uh, As Chris has described there, unfortunately, the original sat-nav unit on the XK is, is obviously pretty outdated. It was, it was nearly sort of outdated when it was launched, really, to be honest with you. So when you replace the, the sat-nav discs on those, it just upgrades the maps. It doesn't change any of the firmware. So unfortunately, as regards to a genuine conversion, there isn't anything, as far as I'm aware, that is available to update this. Now... Um, we have fitted a system to um, actually to the X350, which uses a, a very similar uh, map system. Now it's called JagDroid, and is what it does is it actually converts the existing satnav um, screen, etc., to be actually be Android compatible. So basically, it will mirror the screen of your phone to the actual car, and then you can just use your your Google Maps or whatever satnav you use on your phone. Obviously, you can use it hands-free as it connects through the system. Now. As I'm aware, I don't think they do this for the X150, but it would definitely be worth considering contacting them to see if they do have something available. Brilliant, Tom. That sounds really interesting and uh, something for all Jag owners to maybe consider if uh, you're struggling with that. Onto a slightly more classic Jaguar now, a V12 XJS, which is having trouble starting when it's hot. It's the car of Brian Riley, and Brian says, I've got a 1984 V12 XJS that I've owned since 1994 with 73,000 miles on the clock. My question is, what could be causing the difficulty in starting when the car has been out for a run and then rested for, say, an hour? It always starts first time when it's cold. Could this be linked to the fact that the car has no air conditioning, as this was depressurized a few years ago, and I've never gotten around to converting to modern gas? 
So, what do you think, Tom? There's lots of stuff this could be. Yeah, absolutely, Wayne. And, and same goes with this. I've, I've spoken to Dave, and he's given a couple of great tips for this. So, um, as you said, it could be a number of things. A V12, when it is set up correctly, um, can be fast and fairly and fuel efficient, plus actually very reliable. Um, first things to check, um, firstly, would be ignition timing. Mechanical advance on these and can and does quite often seize in a distributor, inducing a large negative impact on performance increasing fuel consumption as well and can cause starting and idling issues. Now the ignition timing with the vacuum capsule disconnected and a hot engine should be at 18 degrees before TDC at 3000 rpm and typically around 0 degrees before TDC at idle. So it should also rise fairly smoothly towards 18 degrees before TDC as the revs are increased. If it is seized, the distributor will require dismantling for access and to clean and free the mechanism inside there. Now, another common point and often happens is the throttle bushes. Now, there is one per side on the throttle drop link rods to the actual plates, and these do often wear. If these are so, then there is a huge amount of lost motion in the throttle linkage that can cause major fueling issues below 1500 RPM. There is also a fuel temperature sensor in the left side of the fuel rail. On a 1984 car, it is likely to be an electronic switch rather than the later vacuum modulator. This needs checking as they often are left disconnected or the switch drops out of the housing. Now, a couple of other points to check are the spark plugs. They should be an NGK BR7 EFS. Also check for the sort of condition of these plugs and whether the system has any air leaks. I would also recommend the check condition of HT's leads, general rotor arm and distributor cap for condition. These can all contribute towards poor engine performance and starting issues with a V12 engine. There is also, I'm afraid, sort of no real shortcuts. It can be a good day's work to work through all of these um, as the engine management system is, is pretty basic. Then you have the engine cooling system. The radiator is pretty common um, to block on these with road dirt debris and does unfortunately need removal to be checked, cleaned and replaced if needed. There are also two thermostats, one per banks. These should be changed sort of every three years and I always recommend to use genuine Jaguar ones. We use an 80 to 82 degree version as there are too many substandard items out there to be completely honest so hopefully there's a couple of points there that will get you started but my recommendations really would be to to start with the basics and go from there okay so uh, to recap those points then for you brian check your ignition time in that mechanical advance and make sure that that's not seized have a look at those throttle bushes as well check the spark plugs the condition of those check for any air leaks Check the condition of HT leads, general rotor arm and distributor cap condition as well. And then also just check those two thermostats and make sure that the radiator is not blocking up with road dirt and debris. Yeah, pretty unlikely we think then that the air conditioning has had a impact on that. That just about rounds up all of our questions for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Uh, Tom, you are very busy now that sort of lockdown has eased over there at Swallows Independent Jaguar. What have you got in at the minute? Yeah, absolutely, Wayne. So we've started to allow some of our staff to come back in as normal. And, and to be honest with you, we're just inundated with sort of general service and MOT work. A lot of um, customers are still wanting to get their vehicles MOT and check they're all up to a roadworthy condition. So we've got a busy afternoon with servicing, etc. at the moment. Well, we'll let you get back to it, Tom. Thanks once again. And we'll be uh, talking to you again in next week's podcast. Cheers, Tom. Thanks a lot. Cheers. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Jaguar Enthusiast.
Enthusiasts Club podcast. Join the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club now at jec.org.uk. Well, next on the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast, I'm talking about an absolute beast, to be quite honest with you. What if I told you that there was an XJ6 out there with a V12 quad cam that was 8.73 litres and looks set to break, or at least attempt to break, some land speed records? Well, that is just about what we've got in front of us here, and uh, the builder of such a beast is on the phone now. Hiya, Kevin. Hello, Tell us a little bit about your Jaguar history, first of all. You're highly involved in the JC racing, and you've been an enthusiast all your life, I gathered. I suppose uh, it, it started when I used to run a, a car body shop. Uh, so we, we had lots of cars through there, uh, and lots of uh, like Porsche, Jaguar, stuff like that. And then the Jaguar kind of just kept coming, you know? Um, so yeah, lo- lots of them, uh, and in- involved with other Jaguar companies as well. And I, I-, I guess the-, the passion grew from there. Uh, the racing guys, uh, Chris Robinson in particular, tell me that uh, you have a particular talent at straightening out bent racing cars, and you've, <laughs> you've been involved in helping quite a few of the lads sort out some uh, little hiccups along the way, haven't you? I have, yes, yeah. Uh, but to be honest, it, it, I really enjoy it. Um, from very early on, I, I, I've always had this thing to repair, fix, and yeah, and anything mechanical. So uh, yeah, I just I just really enjoy it, and I still enjoy it today. So I mean, obviously, you've got the skills to be able to repair cars, and they've been honed over many years. But generally speaking, as a racing car, do you think Jaguars in general are quite easy to repair? Or as a racing car, they are challenging to repair. Yeah, because as, as soon as you start to put roll cages uh, and you know seam welding, uh, anything like that, it, it does create problems in straightening them if, if they've been you know in an accident. Um, obviously ju- just because of all the, the safety features in them what makes them lovely shapes and beautiful cars to look at is not necessarily what you want when you're trying to repair a bent racing car i guess no that's true yeah tell us about this land speed record car then firstly where did the idea for this come from i'm not 100 percent sure where it came from i mean th- this was like going back five years ago and uh i was i was in the pub with, with a friend and for some reason, we 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 just got talking about race cars, and I'm I'm just thinking, you know, when, you know, back in the days when the, when the XK120 ran at uh, Jabek, you know, fascinating cars. I wonder if we could actually have a go at it, you know. So uh, it, yeah, it kind of started around there. If that makes any sense. What's the record that you'd actually be going for then? What's the plan? The plan is for the to beat the XFR. Uh, what raced at Bonneville a few years ago. That that achieved 225, I believe. This is the car uh, that's now in the uh, Jaguar Daimler Heritage Collection at Gaydon, isn't it, on display? It is, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you know, I thought, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll have a go at that one. I didn't want it ECUs, I didn't want superchargers, turbochargers. You know, I, I, wanted it, I wanted it like old school, just pure Jaguar grunt kind of thing. Well, old school it is, because you've actually used a 
XJ6 donor car, haven't you, for this? And we'll talk about the engine in a minute because that's the beating heart of this throbbing beast. <laughs> but um, uh, tell us about the donor car. Why did you go for an XJ6? Um, this is a, is it a Series 3 that I spotted on the pictures? It is a Series 3, yeah. Um, but it, it's had a lot of uh, body modifications. Because um, the original plan was to put it in my Series 1 uh, XJ6 race car. But when I started to build the engine up, I couldn't believe how how big it was. And then I thought, well, I don't want to ruin a perfectly good race car because of the, you know, the, the serious modifications that would have to be done to get this engine to go in. So the plan was to source another car. And, uh, and as you can see from the photographs, it, it was quite, uh, quite well chopped up. You've built in some safety features from day one, haven't you? It's got like an integral cage within it. That that was obviously important to make sure that it's firstly rigid enough to take all the power you're going to be putting through it and then also making sure you're safe while you're driving it. That's right, yeah. It, it, it's built uh, following the like guidelines of the salt flat races. So uh, there the are strict safety criteria. Uh, so the roll cage is, is actually a cage inside a cage Tell us about this engine then. Um, it's a V12 quad cam, 8.73 litres. You reckon you're going to get 226 miles per hour out of this when it's finished. How did you go about <laughs> building this? Because there's, there's bits grafted on everywhere from what I can see. I, I actually used three really good engines just to make this this one. Um, so, yes, a lot of sacrifices were made. Let's just have a listen to this engine and uh, <laughs> see how this thing sounds. That sounds really fearsome, basically. They are Jaguar 4.2 XK engines. The two blocks are kind of sliced off at the cylinders and then mated to a, a, a bespoke common crankcase so that the two engines can actually sit in unison with one crank. And this is all home-built. This is amazing engineering skills that you've managed to, to pull off here. Yeah, I mean, I, I did pull in some uh, some favours, uh, you know, for, you know, late laser cutting and uh, some specialist welding, obviously distressing of, of, uh, of parts as well. Um but yeah, most of it was most of it was done uh, at home. Have you got a target in mind that this car is going to be capable of, or is it all down to testing once you finish the build? Yeah, um, I mean, we we have calculated some speeds, uh, roughly trying to work in the drag factor, which is quite hard when you're messing around with cars. Um, but I, you know, yeah, I would I would love to uh, I would love to beat that that 225 miles an hour uh, record um, but you know I'm <laughs> at the same time uh, it, it could all end in tears um, so I, I, you know I don't really know I'm just going to go there and see what happens if it all stays together <laughs> uh, then you know I don't know we can move on to do other things with it it's Elvington Airfield that you're planning to do the speed run at isn't it uh, hopefully yes it, it, it is all Jaguar, by the way. Every single nut, bolt, fan belt, everything is, is all Jaguar. There's nothing else in it. What's been the most challenging bit of the build so far, then? Definitely the engine. I got to one stage where it, it, I, was ready to, I was ready to run it, and I just couldn't get it to go. At one stage, I just thought, well, I'm going to put a glass top on it and, and 
put it in the corner of the lounge as a table. But uh, speaking to a, a friend of mine who, who uh, races drag cars, you know, I'd got, uh, I'd got fuel, I'd got a spark, uh, got compression. Everything was right. It, it just wouldn't go. And then he, he was telling me about this uh, anomaly called the spark knockout. So he lent me as a racing ignition uh, system for his drag car. Uh, and as soon as we put that on, it, it, you know, it fired into life. The high compression uh, just extinguishes the spark before it has a chance to, to ignite. Does this run on normal fuel then, or are you allowed to use something a bit more spicy in it when you're doing the runs? Um, no, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just run it on normal pump fuel. No turbos, no superchargers, nothing like that. Just, just pure grunt. Kevin, you've actually named the car. What is the car's name and why? The car is named uh, after, after my parents, uh, Alice and Fred. Uh, so the car is now named uh, Alfred. So, yeah, Alfred is its name. It will do them proud, I'm sure of it. We wish you all the best of luck with this, Kevin, and we'll be following you every step of the way here at the Jaguar Enthusiast Club. Fingers crossed that you, uh, you managed to beat the record, Kevin. We will. That's all for this episode of the Jaguar Enthusiast Club podcast. Don't forget to get in touch and send us your questions via jecpodcast.com. Use the voice recorder on there preferably, or of course, you can use the contact form as well. You can also join the Jaguar Enthusiast Club really easily online at jecpodcast.com. Just click the Join Us button to ensure that you get the latest copy of Jaguar Enthusiast magazine and access to literally hundreds of pounds worth of member discounts and benefits. Till our next podcast, see ya. This is the Jaguar Enthusiasts Club podcast. Subscribe for new episodes at jecpodcast.com.